1726, Daniel Defoe, you can see him there, published the third volume of his Tour Through the Whole Island of Great Britain. He had begun the project four years earlier, describing a series of journeys, purportedly eyewitness accounts of the state of the nation, from the pen of a man who could genuinely be described as the first modern journalist. Now, there is, in fact, some uncertainty as to whether Defoe undertook all those journeys himself. Some of his reports appear to be second-hand, <coughs> typical of a journalist. But whether his source was his eyes, his ears, or his reading, Defoe was unequivocal in his attitude to the English Lake District. He pronounced Westmoreland, one of the two counties that at that time made up the lakes, Westmoreland and Cumberland are now, of course, combined into Cumbria, um, he pronounced Westmoreland to be uh, a county eminent only for being the wildest, most barren and frightful of any that I have passed over in England, or even in Wales itself. <laughs> Worse even than Wales, imagine. The west side, which borders on Cumberland, he continued, is indeed bounded by a chain of almost unpassable mountains, which in the language of the country are called fells. There is, says Defoe, but one word to sum up this landscape. Horror. These Lakeland fells, he writes, have no rich, pleasant valleys between them, as among the Alps. No lead mines and veins of rich ore, as in the Peak District. No coal pits, as in the hills above Halifax. Much less gold, as in the Andes. But all barren and wild, of no use or advantage to man or beast. Note those terms, use and advantage. Defoe was a man who believed in what we would now call the bourgeois or capitalist idea of getting on in the world, whether that meant mining for lead, coal and gold or building a shelter and a fledgling economy like his Robinson Crusoe, or for that matter, using your sex appeal to survive in a patriarchal society like his Moll Flanders. The Life and Strange Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, one of the foundational texts of the modern novel, had been published a few years earlier. And Crusoe is often described as the exemplar of economic man. With the assistance of a little slave labour from Friday, he shows that the bourgeois virtues of resilience, enterprise and hard work may enable a man to build a functioning economy even in the inhospitable environment of a desert island. He introduces British technology and agriculture to the island and sets up a political structure with himself at the top. In the words of a lecture once given by James Joyce in Trieste, Robinson Crusoe is the true prototype of the British colonist, embodying the whole Anglo-Saxon spirit, the manly independence, the unconscious cruelty, the persistence, the slow yet efficient intelligence, the sexual apathy, the calculating taciturnity. The Lake District, Defoe, a Londoner and a businessman, implies in his tour, has no such economic potential, not even that of a desert island, no value at all. Fast forward two centuries, and now nearly 20 million visitors per year visit the Lake District National Park, spending £1.4 billion and supporting nearly 20,000 jobs. How did we get from there to here? That is my theme today. And if you've come to any of my first three lectures this season, you will not be surprised to hear that I will be arguing for William Wordsworth's central place in the story. But it is a long and fascinating story, so I'll also be providing you with snapshots of some other key players. 
a clue to the change in sensibility that led to the transformation of attitudes to the lakes and mountains of the north may be found in a different aspect of Robinson Crusoe, namely the way in which it works as a spiritual autobiography. Crusoe's solitude among the forms of nature on his island leads him to contemplate God. The idea of finding God in nature was at the time known as natural religion or deism. This contrasts with revealed religion, which comes from the personal encounter with Jesus. As a Puritan, Defoe believed that revealed faith was paramount. He did, however, recognise that, thanks to natural religion, even savages, such as Friday, may have a sense of the divine. And Crusoe makes it his business to build on this potential and convert Man Friday to his revealed Christianity. Now, natural religion or deism gathered pace as the 18th century unfolded, often as a middle-class reaction against the perceived danger of non-conformist zeal, Puritan and later Methodist, leading to disruption of the social order. Add to this the aesthetic revolution associated with the theory of the sublime, the idea that horror in the face of the awe-inspiring power of mountains, storms and wilderness might be both mentally stimulating and indeed an encounter with a divine force. And we find ourselves on the road to that aspect of romanticism which has sometimes been described as spilt religion. In 1753, a Cambridge-educated clergyman called John Brown who, like Melvin Bragg, came from Wigton in Cumberland, wrote a letter to Lord Littleton, which was published some years later under the title Description of the Lake and Vale of Keswick. There's an image there of Derwent Water, the lake on which Keswick is, is seated. The full perfection of Keswick, wrote Brown, consists of three circumstances, beauty, horror and immensity united. To give you a complete idea of these three perfections as they are joined in Keswick, he continued, would require the united powers of Claude, Salvatore and Poussin. Of course, he's referring there to three very famous continental artists of the previous century. Claude Lorraine, famous for his classical, his gentle classical landscapes, would throw his delicate sunshine over the cultivated vales, the scattered cots, the groves, the lake and wooded islands. Then Salvatore Rossa would dash out the horror of the rugged cliffs, the steeps, the hanging woods and foaming waterfalls. It would later become commonplace to associate Salvatore Rossa with the wild sublime and Claude Lorraine with the gentler idea of the beautiful. There was a famous distinction made by Edmund Burke in a treatise about the nature of beauty, the sublime associated with mountains and storms, the beautiful with gentler meadow-like landscapes. Poussin, and uh, Brown was probably thinking not of the famous Nicolas Poussin, but of Gaspard uh, Poussin, his, his pupil and relative. Uh, Poussin, famous for his, his, his distant prospects of mountains. Poussin, says Brown, would fill in the mountains. And this is a rather nice Gaspard Poussin with a sense of a, a mountain in the, in the shaded distance. Well, I think this was the first occasion on which the Lake District was praised in the language of the sublime. 
and also the first occasion in which the Lake District was represented by means of an artistic comparison. Dr Brown invokes the most admired classical landscape artists in order to suggest that it might be worth visiting the lakes because the experience of doing so would be like looking at a three-dimensional example of a great painting. And implicitly, the painter of the scenery is God. The aesthetic of the sublime, the connoisseurship of artistic taste, and the comfort of deism thus come together. Dr John Brown supplemented his modest clergyman's stipend up in Wigton by serving as tutor to a gentleman in Carlisle called John Bernard Gilpin. Both Dr Brown and Mr Gilpin had artistic aspirations themselves, which were duly passed on to one of the boys um, whom Brown tutored, William Gilpin. He would grow up to develop a hugely influential theory for which he coined a new name. In his Observations on the River Wye, the book that inspired William Wordsworth to make the tour of the Wye Valley on the Welsh border that inspired his greatest poem, Tintin Abbey, Gilpin proposed a new object of pursuit for tourists. Instead of inquiring into the culture of the soils or the manners of the men in the places they visited, says Gilpin, they should examine the face of a country by the rules of picturesque beauty. Gilpin had defined that term some years earlier in an essay on prints and engravings. This was the 18th century, a great time of popularity of prints and engravings of paintings. By picturesque, he meant, of course, expressive of that peculiar kind of beauty which is agreeable in a picture. Some years after the, uh, the Y tour, he published an, another picturesque guide, Observations Relative to Picturesque Beauty, made in 1772 on several parts of England, particularly the mountains and lakes of Cumberland and Westmoreland. And here, his principles were applied to the landscape of the Lake District, thus encouraging more and more fashionable tourists to venture north. Another key figure in our story is the Etonian poet Thomas Gray, most famous for his elegy written in a country churchyard. Gray, as a young man, went on a tour of the Alps with his intimate school friend Horace Walpole, son of the Prime Minister and inventor of 18th century Gothic. And there Gray was inspired by the sublime scenery and especially the mountain setting of the monastery of the Grand Chartreuse to which Wordsworth would later make a pilgrimage. And this is what Gray wrote. Not a precipice, not a torrent, not a cliff, but is pregnant with religion and poetry. There are certain scenes here in the Alps, near the Grand Chartreuse, that would awe an atheist into belief without the help of other argument. So again, the idea of seeing the power of God in the powerful mountain scene. Notice how he says pregnant with religion and poetry. We are on another path, perhaps, towards Matthew Arnold's claim in the face of science's assault upon the old biblical certainties about the age of the earth and the evolution of man, that there would come a time when all that shall remain of religion will be the poetry of it. 
And Matthew Arnold is another of those Victorians for whom the Lake District was immensely important. He spent his childhood holidays there uh, because his father, Thomas Arnold of Rugby, bought a house there under the influence of Wordsworth. Well, back in England, Thomas Gray read Dr Brown's essay on the glories of Keswick and decided to take a trip to the lakes himself in order to find some sublimity akin to that of the Alps, but much closer to home. And he was duly impressed by Borrowdale and the craggy fells, but he also found gentler landscapes, approximating more to Edmund Burke's idea of the beautiful rather than the sublime. And he found them especially in the Vale of Grasmere. It's a wonderful uh, watercolour of Grasmere by the artist Francis Town. This is Grey on the Vale of Grasmere. The bosom of the mountains spreading here into a broad basin discovers in the midst Grasmere water. Its margin is hollowed into small bays with bold eminences, some of them rocks, some of soft turf, that half conceal and vary the figure of the little lake they command. From the shore, a low promontory pushes itself into the water, and on it stands a white village with the parish church rising in the midst of it, hanging enclosures, cornfields, meadows green as an emerald with trees and hedges and cattle, fill up the whole space from the edge of the water. And just opposite you is a large farmhouse at the bottom of a steep, smooth lawn, embosomed in old woods which climb halfway up the mountainside and discover above them a broken line of crags that crown the scene. Not a single red tile, no flaring gentleman's house or garden walls break in upon the repose of this little unsuspected paradise. But all is peace, rusticity, and happy poverty in its neatest, most becoming attire. This is the place that William Wordsworth and his sister Dorothy would come to call home, and where he would write much of his most memorable poetry, and she her great journals. Wordsworth would sympathise with many aspects of Gray's description. The paradise-like quality of the Vale of Grasmere does indeed come from the harmony of its elements, the sense of a manageable scale to its mountain beauty, its blended colours and the integration of the buildings with the environment. But he dissented with a passion from the notion of happy poverty, the idea of the rural poor as no more than part of the picturesque scene. In his poetry, he would seek to find a voice for the vagrant, the old leech gatherer, the destitute widow, the sheep farmer on the breadline. Brown's influential description of the Vale of Keswick, Gray's journal of his Lakeland tour, and other key texts were gathered together in an appendix to the second edition of a book well known to Wordsworth, Thomas West's A Guide to the Lakes in Cumberland, Westmoreland and Lancashire. And the frontispiece to that guide was an engraving of Grasmere. There it is. The Guide to the Lakes. This became the volume for fashionable travellers to pack in their baggage. Between them, Gilpin and West wrote the rule book for Lake District tourists of the kind that still today outnumber those who go to walk the rugged fells. I mean the day-trippers, the beauty-spot photographers. West provided a list of so-called stations, elevated points where you could stop your carriage and take in a view that was composed like a picture with a dark foreground, 
a sharp middle distance and a hazy horizon. And when he came to the Vale of Grasmere, he quoted Gray's description of the little unsuspected paradise, but then suggested that Gray had not gone to the best beauty point. The best station was another one. It was this view. Mr Gray's description is taken from the road descending from Dunmail Rays, but the more advantageous station to view this romantic vale from is on the fourth end of the western side. Proceed from Ambleside by Clappersgate, along the banks of the River Brathay, and at Scaleth Bridge, ascend a steep hill called Luffrig that leads to Grasmere, and a little behind its summit, you come in sight of the valley and lake lying in the sweetest order. West adds that in terms of the sweetness and order of the compositional effect, this has a great advantage over the aspect from Dunmail Rays because Mr Gray has omitted the island in his description, which is a principal feature in the scene. And you can see the island there, the sense of breaking up the view by including the island. Well, Gilpin, meanwhile, developed more fully the notion of turning a landscape into a scene. He recommended the use of what was known as a clode glass. There's a picture of one up at the top there for you. This was an oval-shaped pocket mirror to which various filters could be applied so that you could go to one of West's stations or viewpoints, then turn your back on the landscape, hold up the mirror and capture the scene in such a way as to make it resemble a painting by Claude Lorraine. I see little difference between this and the modern phenomenon whereby a tourist will stop at a Lake District viewpoint or beauty spot, turn their back on the view and picture themselves by means of their selfie stick. The popularity of Lake District tourism was such that by 1797, a gentleman called James Plumtree was moved to write a play satirising the phenomenon dedicated to tourists in general, but more particularly those who take the tour of the lakes. It was called The Lakers. It includes assorted local rustics, including a beggar and his dog, a pair of hikers. I think the first hikers in English literature, they are known as pedestrians because they insist upon travelling on foot, not by carriage. And in the central role, Miss Becca Bunga Veronica, an avid amateur botanist. This was the era where amateur natural history really, really took off. Little wonder then that early in the second volume of Lyrical Ballads, published three years later on the turn of the century, Wordsworth would write, adopting the voice of a local vicar, these tourists, heaven preserve us, needs must live a profitable life. Some glance along, rapid and gay, as if the earth were air, and they were butterflies to wheel about long as their summer lasted. Some, as wise, upon the forehead of a jutting crag, sit perched with book and pencil on their knee, and look and scribble, scribble on and look, until a man might travel twelve stout miles or reap an acre of his neighbour's corn. It's Wordsworth's poem, The Brothers. What kind of economy do we now have, these lines ask, in which some people have the wealth and time to sit and idly sketch, while others must go about their business and their labour? And what kind of profit does such indulgence avail the human soul? Is picturesque tourism merely a middle-class indulgence? As W.H. Auden would put it in a poem written over a hundred years later, am I to see in the Lake District then another bourgeois invention like the piano? 
What Wordsworth sought to articulate was an alternative response to his native region from that espoused by the likes of Gilpin and West. Now, pub quiz question. What was the most widely read work of the most admired English poet of the 19th century? It could hardly have been the prelude, which, which lay unpublished in Wordsworth's lifetime. Nor was it lyrical ballads. Nor was it the excursion, the long poem that he did publish, nor his collected poems. Rather, it was a work that went under various different titles, as it was reprinted no fewer than ten, in no fewer than ten editions in the first half century of its life. But it became commonly known as A Guide to the Lakes. It was, to quote Wordsworth's leading 20th century biographer, Mary Mormon, more constantly in demand than any of his poetry. Matthew Arnold once told a story about meeting a clergyman who admired Wordsworth's Guide to the Lakes and asked if its author had written anything else. <laughs> the guide was first written in the form of an introduction and accompanying text for a clergy another clergyman, Joseph Wilkinson's volume of Select Views in Cumberland, Westmoreland and Lancashire, published in 1810. And that was, that's one of the views. They're very nice, uh, nice engravings and Wordsworth just provided the commentary. It then appeared under Wordsworth's own name in one of his poetry books, uh, 1820. The title was The River Duddon, a series of sonnets, Vaudricourt and Julia and other poems, to which is annexed a topographical description of the country of the lakes in the north of England. And in an explanatory note, uh, Wordsworth uh, told readers there how the book was originally published as an introduction to Wilkinson's views of the lakes, but that was a very expensive volume, um, and he now wants to offer it uh, in, the in the company of his poems about the River Duddon, the River Duddon, one of the rivers in the lakes, because it might help to illustrate them. It then appeared a couple of years later, uh, independently, as a description of the scenery of the lakes in the north of England. And that edition included some extra materials, uh, an account of an excursion up Scarfell Pike and another one to Arleswater, both based closely and without acknowledgement on uh, material by Dorothy Wordsworth. Then it appeared again in 1835, a guide through the district of the lakes in the north of England with a description of the scenery for the use of tourists and residents. And Residence is interesting there, I'll come back to that. And there, Wordsworth set apart the directions and information for the tourist from the main body of the text, which by this time has three sections. View of the country as formed by nature, aspect of the country as affected by its inhabitants, and changes and rules of taste for preventing their bad effects. And Wordsworth says in the preface to that edition that his purpose is to furnish a guide or companion for the minds of persons of taste. But he says he has to begin with the humble and tedious task of supplying the tourist with directions. A few years later, it was published again, this time with the title A Complete Guide to the Lakes, uh, comprising minute directions for the tourist with Mr Wordsworth's description of the scenery of the country, and three letters on the geology of the Lake District by the Reverend Professor Sedgwick. Adam Sedgwick was the first professor of geology in the University of Cambridge. And in a preface, uh, Wordsworth, uh, sorry, in a, in a letter to Sedgwick, Wordsworth explains that his guide is being outsold by others aimed at the body of the tourist, um, but he wants to do something more for the minds of tourists. 
and he therefore proposes that Sedgwick provides material about the geology of the Lake District. And this version went through five more editions over the next 17 years, and Sedgwick adding further material as, 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 he, as he went on. So a book that began as an accompaniment to the productions of a clergyman cashing in on the vogue for the picturesque, eventually became accompanied by the productions of a Cambridge academic who was one of the crucial figures in the history of the science of geology. The unfolding history of Wordsworth's Guide is a kind of index of the shift from the age of Gilpin and West to that of Lyle and Darwin. Indeed, Sedgwick used the opportunity provided by Wordsworth to, to essentially to write one of the first popularising works on geology. Um, here's the, the, the Sedgwick edition. And this is what he says in his preface. I wish to address more general readers. Any intelligent traveller whose senses are open to the beauties of the country around him and is ready to speculate on such matters of interest as it offers to him. I will therefore endeavour to avoid technical language and I will attempt in a few pages to explain the geology of a most complicated country. I want to open the mind to the nature of the subject, to point out the right way towards a comprehension of some of its general truths. So in other words, Wordsworth's Guide to the Lakes is being used as a vehicle for explaining some of the principles of deep geological time to the general Victorian reader in the age of Lyle and Darwin. So Wordsworth's book has a whole lot of different functions. It's also different from the guides that went before, because whereas people like West were writing exclusively for tourists, for visitors to the lakes, Wordsworth aimed to show what it meant to live there, to dwell among the lakes. Symptomatic in that respect, that in writing of the rootedness of Lakeland cottages, he included some lines of verse from the unpublished manuscript of Home at Grasmere, a poem cardinal to his sense of himself as a dweller in Westmoreland, where earlier guide writers adopted the picturesque tourist's point of view and rarely descended from their, their viewpoints, their stations, rarely spoke to the people. Wordsworth's approach was much more holistic. He moved from nature to the natives, exploring the relationship between the land and its inhabitants. And then he wrote of the evolving and increasingly disruptive influence of man on the environment. Sedgwick goes even further in, just as Wordsworth writes about the surface of the, the area, the land, Sedgwick writes about what's going on deep below the surface, revealing countless ages before man's being. We have come a long way from Thomas West and his attempt to make a visit to the lakes comparable to the composition of a landscape painting. The geologist's hammer has replaced the clothed glass. Throughout the guide, people are seen firmly in relation to their material environment. Among Wordsworth's chief concerns are the management of trees and the architecture of rural buildings. The first section, View of the Country as Formed by Nature, begins with Wordsworth taking the reader to an imaginary station on a cloud midway between Great Gable and Scarfell, from where the eight valleys of the Lake District may be seen stretched out 
like the spokes from the nave of a wheel. By substituting an imaginary station for a real one, Wordsworth differentiates his guide from those intended only for the bodies of tourists. And with that image of a wheel and a hub, he introduces the idea of a unified place with a common centre. And that will be one of his great themes in Home at Grasmere, the idea of Grasmere as a kind of centre. He then goes on to speak of how the mountains, valleys and lakes all work together. How even the humble tarn, those smaller, higher lakes, even the humble tarn makes a necessary contribution to the whole. In the economy of nature, these tarns are useful as auxiliars to lakes. For if the whole quantity of water which falls upon the mountains in time of storm were poured down upon the plains without intervention, the habitable grounds would be much more subject than they are to inundation. Thomas West never seemed to notice tarns, presumably because he did not deem them either picturesque or sublime. Where other guides concerned themselves with how more the more majestic lakes contributed to the charm of a scene, Wordsworth's was interested in the function performed within the ecosystem by the smaller and higher bodies of still water. Then in the second section of his guide, the native inhabitants are seen to share in this natural unity. The economy of nature and the human economy are brought together as the hand of man is, as Wordsworth puts it, incorporated with and subservient to the powers and processes of nature. Man works in partnership with his environment. The Lakeland cottages, he said, may be said rather to have grown than to have been erected, to have risen by an instinct of their own out of the native rock. The buildings in their very form call to mind the processes of nature and thus appear to be received into the bosom of the living principle of things. And again, that phrase, the living principle of things, that sense of an animating spirit is something we also find again and again in Wordsworth's poetry. Not even the places dedicated to Christian worship, he suggests, violate the religio loci, the spirit of place. And a consequence of such integration with nature is an integrated social structure. Until recently, Wordsworth says, there has been a perfect republic of shepherds and agriculturalists, among whom the plough of each man was confined to the maintenance of his own family or to the occasional accommodation of his neighbour. There was no nobleman, knight or squire. The ruling power was nature, not some human overlord. Here, Wordsworth alert to the region's distinctively democratic form of land tenure, describes the district of the lakes as an almost visionary mountain republic. The point there is a lot of the yeoman farmers were not actually tenants of great landlords, um, but held a freehold. But all this, Wordsworth says, has changed as a result of influx and innovation. New residents who are not rooted in the land have brought dissonant new building styles, Worse, in accordance with the craving for prospect, their new houses have been built on obtrusive sites where they do not harmonise with the forms of nature. The rage for picturesque improvement has resulted in the alteration of the contours of the principal island on Windermere. Could not the margin of this noble island be given back to nature, asks Wordsworth, very much in the tone of a modern conservationist. Worst of all, he says, is the introduction of larch plantations. He makes a powerful distinction between the way in which nature forms woods and forests, a gradual and selective process, 
shaped by conditions of soil, exposure to wind and so on, and the environmentally and aesthetically harmful practice of artificial plantations. The new proprietors and tourists will not go away. The function of guide, Wordsworth says, is to, is to educate them, to care for the delicate ecosystem, as we would now call it, of the lakes. In this wish, Wordsworth concludes the third and final section of his guide, the author will be joined by persons of pure taste throughout the whole island, who by their visits, often repeated to the lakes in the north of England, testify that they deem the district a sort of national property in which every man has a right and interest, who has an eye to perceive and a heart to enjoy. In that phrase, in Wordsworth's Guide to the Lakes, a sort of national property, may be seen the origins of both the National Trust and the Lake District National Park. The key figure in this history was a man called Canon Rawnsley, great lover of Wordsworth and the Lake District, also very influenced by the Victorian sage John Ruskin, who spent his later years living in the Lake District. Uh, there's an image there um, of Canon Rawnsley. Uh, he's on, on the right-hand side. Um, yeah, the right-hand the right side with his, his, his beard and his, uh, his, his satchel. Together with Robert Hunter, one of the other key figures in the origin of the National Trust, and Hunter's daughter, Winifred, together with the National Trust solicitor. And they're, they're all there um, on, a, on, a, on a hike in the Lake District. So in 1883, Canon Rawnsley, taking his cue from a battle which Wordsworth had fought in the 1840s, launched a campaign against uh, a parliamentary bill for the extension of the railway into the heart of the lakes. He established a Lake District Defence Society and fought not only against the railway, but in favour of the establishment of public footpath rights. And he gained support from the social reformer Octavia Hill, to whom he had been introduced by Ruskin, and Robert Hunter, who we see there, um, who led the Commons Preservation Society, a group in the vanguard of the open space movement, which was agitating for the preservation of green land in and around London. In 1895, Rawnsley, Hill and Hunter had the National Trust for Places of Historic Interest and Natural Beauty registered as a charity. And that whole concept of a place of natural beauty was bound up with the Romantic tradition and the Lake District. Think back to Defoe. He would never have thought of the Lake District as a place of natural beauty. The trigger for the public meeting at which the formation of the National Trust was first discussed had been the news that a number of sites in the Lake District, including the Falls of Lodore, which had been immortalised in poems by both Southey and Wordsworth, were up for sale. And among the Trust's early acquisitions were Brandlehow Park and Grange Fell on Derwentwater, Queen Adelaide's Hill on Windermere, and Gowbarrow Park on Arleswater. Gowbarrow Park, the very place where Wordsworth had seen the daffodils. It was about to be sold off to a developer for holiday villas, and they did not want that to happen. In his annual report of 1904, the Trust picked up on Wordsworth's idea of a sort of national property and advocated the creation of a national park in the heart of the Lake District. That idea of a national park, of course, was one that had been inaugurated in America by John Muir, 
who founded the Sierra Club, and then Yellowstone and Yosemite emerged as the first national parks. But important to remember there, John Muir, a Scotsman, was a passionate reader of Wordsworth. Before he went to America, he went to Grasmere to pay homage to Wordsworth's grave. Well, of course, it wasn't until 1949 that the, uh, the National Park uh, Act uh, was, was passed in this country. And that act uh, drew together conservation, planning and access. It was based on the recommendations um, of a, a report and a, and, and a committee that had defined the distinctively British idea of a national park as follows. An extensive area of beautiful and relatively wild country, which for the nation's benefit and by appropriate national decision and action, A, the characteristic landscape beauty is strictly preserved, B, access and facilities for public open air enjoyment are amply provided, C, wildlife and buildings and places of architectural and historic interest are suitably protected, while D, established farming use is effectively maintained. Now, each element of that definition may surely be traced back to the values of Wordsworth's guide. The maintaining of the place for the benefit of the whole nation. The conception of landscape beauty with a particular emphasis on wild or sublime country. The belief in the importance of the open air. The respect for buildings that have a history in the place and the recognition that traditional agricultural practices are integral to the identity of the place. Wordsworth would have been pleased that shepherds still work on the hills of Westmoreland and Cumberland, since, in contrast to the American model, the English and Welsh national parks do not consist of enclosed areas owned by the government. The land in them remains privately owned, much of it, of course, by the National Trust, and may be used for commercial activities, farming, forestry. Conservation is sought by means of planning rather than possession. All who walk in the national parks are legatees of Wordsworth, his sister and his friends, who derived so much of their spiritual nourishment from walking and looking in the way that is suggested by such entries in Dorothy's journal as the following. William had slept very ill, he was tired and had a bad headache. We walked around the two lakes. Grasmere was very soft and Rydal was extremely beautiful from the pasture side. Nabskar was just topped by a cloud which, cutting it off as high as it could be, cut off, as, as high as it could be cut off, made the mountains look uncommonly lofty. We sat down a long time in different places. Whenever Canon Rawnsley made the case for the preservation of the Lake District, he cited the example of Wordsworth. The dedication of one of his books is typical. To my friend and fellow labourer, William Hills, who has done more than any man in the district to keep our English Lakeland undisfigured and secure from rash assault for the health, rest and inspiration of the people. Secure from rash assault, um, in quotation marks there, is a quote from the famous sonnet that Wordsworth wrote on the projected Kendall and Windermere Railway. Is then no nook of English ground secure from rash assault? Now for Ronsley, there is no contradiction between opposing the extension of the railway into the lakes and the idea that the lakes belong to the people. Like Wordsworth, it was to the rash assault that he objected. 
Now, this is an important point because Wordsworth's concern for the preservation of the lakes has often been put down to what we might now call nimbyism, not in my backyard, to a selfish desire to keep away artisan day-trippers from Manchester. But actually, if we read carefully the letters that Wordsworth wrote to the Morning Post newspaper in 1844 concerning the projected Kendall and Windermere Railway, what he was objecting to was not the fact of working class people coming to the lakes, but to large scale organised Sunday outings. This is what he writes. Packing off men after this fashion for holiday entertainment is treating them like children. They go at the will of their master and must return at the same or be dealt with as transgressors. Let the master manufacturers consent to a 10 hours bill, i.e. a reduction to a 10 hour working day with little or, if possible, no diminution of wages, and the necessaries of life being more easily procured, the mind will develop itself accordingly, and each individual would be more at liberty to make at his own cost excursions in any direction which might be most inviting to him. There would then be no need for the masters to send them in groves, scores of miles from their homes and families, to the borders of Windermere or anywhere else. And it is, of course, this problem of mass tourism that threatens the Lake District today. Though, ironically now, the rash assault comes from cars and coaches, not the railway. Changing historical conditions bring different methods of putting ideals into practice. In the 19th century, the railway represented a threat, and there was a need for the protective demarcation of areas of outstanding natural beauty. Whereas now, the railway is back in environmental favour, and some conservationists advocate the abolition of the national park system on the grounds that the whole country should be subject to the stringent planning regulations that apply in the parks. The key challenge facing those who own and those who manage the Lake District today, and predominantly, of course, that is the National Park Authority and the biggest landowner, namely the National Trust, is the reconciliation of the tourist industry with the preservation of the way of life that has shaped the very landscape and culture of the region. The life, that is to say, of the hill farmer. Those mountainsides around Grasmere Lake are not naturally smooth and green. They have been nibbled into that lovely condition by generations of Herdwick sheep. Without the hill farmers, they would swiftly revert to bracken and wildwood. The person who did more than anyone else to recognise that the preservation of the Lake District as a place of outstanding beauty is as much about people as landscape was Canon Rawnsley's friend, Beatrix Potter. And there they are together. She used her substantial inheritance and the royalties from her little books with their watercolours showing Lake District scenes, not to mention the merchandising that went with them, which began as early as about 1905, you could get Peter Rabbit merchandising very, very soon after the books were first published. She used that money to purchase more and more parcels of land in the lakes. She began, of course, with Hilltop Farm, her home. She gradually expanded the holding of that farm, which, of course, was very close to the village of Hawkshead, where Wordsworth went to school. Then, in 1923, she purchased Troutbeck Park Farm, which brought her 2,000 acres and a flock of prize Herdwick sheep. I should just mention, by the way, in the uh, background of that image of Mrs Tiggywinkle, uh, you can see a lovely little mountain uh, called Catbells, which is uh, one of the mountains above, above, above Keswick. Um, yes, a flock of prize Herdwick sheep. 
here she is with her um, her herdsman um, uh, having just won a big prize. She did indeed become a prize-winning breeder and a hugely respected figure within the tough-minded Herdwick Sheep Breeders Association. When she actually died, she was president-elect. She was going to be president the next year. In 1930, she was able to afford to buy the Monk Coniston estate, a wonderful 4,000-acre estate in the beautiful Langdale Valley, moving uh, from the Langdale Pikes and Little Langdale Village down towards Coniston, which, of course, was the home of the Victorian sage John Ruskin, who's the kind of key transitional figure from Wordsworth into this late 19th century story I'm telling. And I'm very sorry I haven't had time to talk about Ruskin today. Maybe I'll lecture here another time on Ruskin, a hugely important figure. Well, Beatrix Potter passed on half that Coniston and Langdale estate to the National Trust immediately at cost price, and she vowed to gift the rest of it to the Trust in her will. And a key stipulation when she died and left all her land to the National Trust was that it should not be parcelled out for bungalows and holiday homes. In this, she was truly in the spirit of Wordsworth. The Trust's website tells us, today, tells us today that she left them 14 farms, all of which are still working farms managed by National Trust tenant farmers in accordance with her wishes. And we continue her conservation work in the Lake District to this day. Now, that is true, though a couple of years ago, many local Herdwick farmers were very concerned when the Trust bought the land of a, a, an independent uh, hill farm called Thornythwaite, but not the farmhouse, and they were worried about the, the future of that. And indeed, the future of Lake District hill farming does remain very uncertain, perhaps not least in the immediate years ahead, insofar as one of the good things to have come out of the European Union is that agricultural subsidies have in recent years increasingly been directed towards environmental farm, environmental friendly farming, and that will presumably disappear. We won't go down that road tonight. But let us hope that the spirit of Wordsworth, of Canon Rawnsley, and of Beatrix Potter will live on and secure the survival of this very special place, the English Lakes, but also sustain the ancient way of life of the Herdwick Shepherds. Thank you.